What is the church's view on singleness, on sex? Sue Bolin looks at two books that contain remarkable insight, now on Probe. Over the next three days, we're going to talk about Laura Smith's book, Loves Me, Loves Me Not, The Ethics of Unrequited Love. Right away, the subtitle lets you know this book is special, The Ethics of Unrequited Love. Hardly anyone writes about our responsibility toward godliness when feelings aren't mutual and the other person doesn't love you back. In order to develop a kingdom understanding of both our mutual and unrequited romantic relationships, Smith takes a close look at Jesus' teachings on marriage and family. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus makes an astonishing statement. He says, There are those who have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And shortly after that, in response to the Sadducees, Jesus declares, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Jesus also asserts that the way we think about family changes when he enters the scene. Jesus is teaching, and his biological family interrupts him. They expect that as his mother and brothers, they deserve more of Jesus' attention than the crowd does. And it was natural for them to expect this. But again, Jesus turns social expectations on their head and responds, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus saying all this about marriage and family was a big deal. In Jesus' day, everyone's number one loyalty was to his or her family. People who were married were higher on the social ladder than those who were not, and couples who had children, especially sons, were even higher. Jesus came and changed our focus from the family to the church. He declared that the only members of society who are valuable to God's kingdom are those who do God's will, regardless of their marital status. After looking into these passages of Scripture, Smith asks us to consider... If most unmarried Christians feel excluded from congregations whose messages and activities have their focus on the biological family instead of the spiritual family, how can we change our focus and the way we interact with one another so that we're following in Jesus' revolutionary footsteps? This has been Probe with your host, Sue Bolin. If Sue has gotten you thinking about singleness in the church, get your free copy of Renea McKenzie's transcript on Kingdom Singleness. Visit us online today at probe.org. Again, that's probe.org. Then join us next time as we shine the light of God's truth into our darkened culture here on Probe. We're talking about Laura Smith's book, Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Yesterday, we looked at Jesus' revolutionary teachings on marriage and singleness and family, and we asked the question, does the way we typically think about these things need to change? To give you an example of how Christians usually think about marriage, specifically the expectations we have regarding marriage in our own lives, let me tell you something that happened to my colleague Renee. She was subbing in Awana, a Bible memory program in her church. The leaders asked the third through fifth grade girls what they foresaw in their future. Each girl stood up and stated confidently, I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to get married. What a wonderful vision for one's future! What's interesting is that each child had the exact same vision. Marriage is socially expected for church girls. It's what Christians consider normal. It's the natural thing to do. Again, marriage is wonderful, and so is having children. 
The question is, are we limiting ourselves and our daughters and ultimately Christ in the church when we buy into this view of marriage and personhood? Is it a limited vision rather than a kingdom vision? Well, what do we mean by kingdom vision? Let's look directly at what Laura Smith says in her book, Loves Me, Loves Me Not. If all Christians everywhere were to take seriously Jesus' teaching that marriage is not ultimate, stop getting married and stop having children, perhaps the church would start to grow through evangelism rather than through procreation. Whoa, that's a bold statement. Oh, don't worry. In the very next lines, she says, I do not believe that all Christians need to be single or stop having children, but all Christians must come to terms with Jesus' teaching that marriage is not ultimate. Taking this teaching seriously will change how we think about the possibility of marriage in our own life and how we treat people around us, particularly within the church, who are single. With that in mind, we're now ready to think about the romantic lives of unmarried folks with a kingdom perspective. Tune in tomorrow as we consider how to behave biblically when romantic interest is not mutual. Over the past two days, we've been looking at a book on Christian love and romance, which is wholly unlike any other book we've seen. Laura Smith's book, Loves Me, Loves Me Not, challenges Christians to govern our romantic relationships with a kingdom perspective, reminding us that the Christian life requires we readjust our ingrown eyeballs and look up toward God and out toward others. How do we do that when we're in love with someone who doesn't love us back? Loves Me, Loves Me Not helps us learn how to behave virtuously in loving someone who does not return our romantic affection. It also helps us to behave virtuously towards someone who cares romantically for us, but all we want is to be friends. Smith encourages her readers to consider true Christian charity in these situations and whether or not charity, or we might use the word agape, supports or rejects society's scripts for such roles. Both film and literature instruct us on what to do if we find our love rejected. We will hold on to the object of our affections by continuing to pursue them until it's absolutely necessary to give up, in which case we resign ourselves to martyrdom upon the cross of love, sometimes in a gallon of ice cream and sappy movies, sometimes quite literally, leaving behind our legacy on the suicide note. Or, movies and books teach us, we simply move on with chin up and pride intact. We tell ourselves, it's their loss, and undoubtedly there is someone out there who is more deserving of us. Certainly, both scenarios can be true. Sometimes we ought to continue to pursue and not give up too quickly. Sometimes our love is misplaced upon someone undeserving, and we must recognize that fact and move on. But motives matter. That is Smith's point. Her exhortation to consider what motivates our behavior is key. Are we responding lovingly or selfishly? Do we deal with unrequited love in a way that's all about us or in a way that seeks the best for the other person and for the kingdom? When we seek to glorify God in everything we do, including a case of unrequited love, that makes a difference in time and in eternity. If our brief look into Laura Smith's Loves Me, Loves Me Not has sparked your interest, be sure to visit our website at probe.org. The next two days, we'll be looking at another book of interest to singles, Lauren Winner's Real Sex. In 2005, Lauren Winter put out a book titled Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. And that's exactly what Winter designs to do. 
talk about sex in a realistic fashion from a biblical point of view that allows us to see past the veneer of unrealistic, untrue beliefs about sex. You're familiar, no doubt, with the statistics on Christian sexuality. We don't stand out as very different from the rest of the culture, which means when the rubber hits the road, our basic beliefs about sex must not really be that different either. You know, if all those books in the Christian living section aren't helping us believe that what the Bible has to say about sex is realistic and true, something's not right. So what makes Winner's Book different? Real Sex offers an alternative to the magazine like Seven Secrets to Sexual Purity by stretching beyond spoon-fed do's and don'ts. Instead, it presents the case for sex within marriage from a big-picture view of who we are and how we relate in the world sexually. A unique quality of Winner's Book is that Real Sex not only attempts to dispel the lies that we are constantly hearing from the world— It also directly challenges the lies about sex we encounter in our churches. This gives readers an opportunity to take a step outside of their everyday cultural surroundings and consider the lies. Society tells lies like, living together is a good practice run, modesty doesn't matter, and good sex can't happen in the humdrum routine of marriage. Of those three lies, which strikes you as most dangerous? We might think it's the prolific idea of shacking up, and in fact, The church is usually pretty clear on its position regarding premarital sex. However, I would like to suggest that a subtle distortion is always more dangerous than an obvious one. It might be equally important for Christians to develop a message which counters the idea found in pop songs and blockbusters that intimacy is always an out-of-this-world experience. Sex isn't meaningful because it's an erotic escape from everyday realities. Rather, sex is meaningful because it's real. Speaking of subtle distortions, the church tells a few fibs of its own. Be sure to catch tomorrow's program as we continue to highlight Lauren Winner's book, Real Sex. Today we continue our review of Lauren Winner's book, Real Sex, discussing the need for a book like Winner's and highlighting one chapter. Unfortunately, just as our culture distorts our understanding of what sex really is, the church isn't always completely honest about sex either. In an attempt to protect God's plan for sex within marriage, the church tells a few fibs of its own. Winner chooses to discuss four of these fibs. One, premarital sex is guaranteed to make you feel lousy. Two, women don't really want to have sex anyway. Three, bodies aren't as important as spiritual things. And four, we can and should Christianize the secular myth that good sex is all about technique. Do any of these lies sound familiar to you? Maybe you find yourself sitting in your car right now thinking, but isn't that true about premarital sex or about spiritual things being more important? Those are tough questions worth considering. I don't have time today to talk about each of them, and I certainly wouldn't want to give away the whole book. But there is one issue concerning the way we talk about sex in church that I find too important not to discuss. Now, I believe churches have generally come to embrace marital sex as good. However, The message from the pulpit can still be a bit confusing, especially for women. Winner notes a study of teenage girls which shows the most reliable way to predict which teenagers are virgins isn't based on the girls' involvement in church or youth group, but whether or not they play team sports. Now that may seem obscure, but athletics teaches girls and boys something about bodies being good and useful for purposes other than sex. This is a message we aren't communicating well. So what should we do? Have more church sports leagues? Well, maybe. 
but perhaps not. We can, however, change the language we use when we talk about sex and modesty. My colleague Renee says that as a woman who grew up constantly hearing from well-meaning Christians that her body was the vehicle of lust and destruction for young men everywhere, it took lots of time to unlearn negative associations about her body and become comfortable in her own skin, though perhaps less time than others, because she played sports. I hope you've enjoyed this week's series and the introduction to these two books. For more, please visit our website, probe.org.